Well, I have been looking forward to this uh, for some time. Uh, a year ago, I was invited to come, and I wasn't able to come because my wife suddenly uh, developed colon cancer. Uh, she's doing very well, and so we give thanks for that. Uh, many of you had uh, kept her in your prayers, and I'm so glad to be able to uh, be here finally uh, to speak to you uh, directly in these matters, and of course, uh, uh, directly from the heart. And I don't know uh, that I have uh, been with a group that is hungrier for the gospel than this. Uh, you people are ready for red meat, uh, and I might as well just hand it right out. Uh, we don't need to deal with the milk of the world. Let's go to a great big, uh, thick uh, uh, New York steak, huh? Uh, and, uh, and we'll give it this way. So I'm not going to fool around with, uh, with any of these matters. Let's go right to uh, the gospel. As a called and ordained minister of the Church of Christ, and therefore, by his authority, I declare unto you the entire forgiveness of all your sin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, there you go. Now, uh, that's what I came to do, uh, and the forgiveness of sins uh, is it. Now, the rest of it is all going to be a footnote, because from this point on, you know, uh, I can address you in another way, and I'm going to address you just the way Paul addresses his congregations. You are dead. That's just what happened. You are dead. But now the freedom comes, the rapture of life. The freedom that begins to come from this is that you are not going to be bound the way the rest of the world is bound in chains, because you now are going to be what we call a person who lives with death behind her, not in front of her. Because people uh, in this world, of course, are born into the world, Heidegger says thrown into the world, and already leaning toward death, and therefore they live their life from life to death. We call those life-deathers. But you people are now going to be beyond death. You people are going to now be uh, the ones who have death behind them. And when death is behind you, then what you fear is gone. It stands behind you once and for all. And when that's the case, you now become not a life-deather, but a death-lifer. That's how this begins to work. And the freedom that comes out of this is unlike anything else that you could experience in any other location or place. And what starts to happen in this freedom is that the key matter for personal relationships, remember that's the subject matter of our conversation here, the key matter for personal relationships opens up in this way, you now who have been forgiven can forgive. And the forgiveness of sins is the key to every relationship. With this as its ground and basis, now you can begin to walk about the cockpit freely, unbuckle the seatbelt. Uh, you do not have to uh, uh, constantly be gripping and holding on some, onto something so that you will not die. And that, after all, is what troubles the conscience of the world out there. And so you need to know what the authority is for forgiving sins and also a bit of how to do it. 
Now, uh, I, as I was thinking about this group and I talked to a number of you uh, last night, there was one uh, text that came very clear to my mind, and uh, we, uh, uh, we as uh, preachers of the gospel uh, always uh, preach from Scripture, so let me read uh, a text uh, that I think represents what's happening in this group. That is, uh, when Christ uh, broke into this world, uh, there were people who were waiting, and they were hungry, and they wanted it, and they wanted it now. Uh, and these were the people that met Jesus at Capernaum, second chapter of Mark. Let me read it. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Uh, a little comment here. Any time that there's a report about Jesus being at home, uh, uh, those who are hungry for the gospel don't let him just sit at home. They won't let him sit on the couch with his uh, little remote uh, for one second. Uh, they want him, and they want him now. And what's going to happen when Jesus arrives home is precisely what is said here in Mark. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room for them, not even about the door. And he was preaching the word to him. That's what Jesus Christ does when he comes. He comes preaching the word, and he preaches it at home. And uh, as he begins to preach, uh, the world is drawn to him. That's John's special language, of course. I will draw the world to me. Now, many of you are getting ready for your sermons this Sunday, and you uh, are going to be preaching on that particular text from John chapter 12. Well, here we go. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room for them, not even about the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now, a paralytic is not exactly our picture of freedom in the world. A paralytic is not getting around much anymore, as we say. A paralytic has difficulties and problems and and if you begin to think about your own life, uh, if there's any great fear about the future, it is the fear that you would be somehow uh, uh, disarmed of your arms and legs and all those things that make you free. So here's a man that we call bound, bound, paralytic. He was carried by four men, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, well, they went up to the roof and removed it. And when they had made an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic lay. You see, this is what happens when you start get, getting wind of the gospel. You're not going to wait uh, at the narthex. Uh, you're not going to uh, come with the, uh, with the paralytic and say, oops, I guess there's no room for me today. Now you're going to find a way in there because you people have gotten hungry for this. So you go to the roof, rip it off. Nothing else is going to matter. And in this case, of course, they let down the paralytic. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, my son, 
your sins are forgiven. Now that is quite a thing to say to a paralyzed man. Your sins are forgiven. Uh, after all, uh, that does not quite seem to be his problem. His problem, of course, is that he has been unfairly elected in this world to bear wounds and suffering that no person should have to bear. And in this circumstance, of course, to turn to such a one and forgive his sins seems to be beside the point. After all, what is needed is to restore his limbs. And to restore his limbs, couldn't Jesus have done it in a more efficient manner? rather than go this way in to him. My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak thus? After all, uh, um, this whole matter of, uh, of, of what is actually needed in this life should not come down to this particular issue of the forgiveness of sins, and not only should this man not be treated as if he were a mere sinner, but who does this Jesus think he is? Since the forgiveness of sins be belongs to God alone. So they said, it is blasphemy. Now you remember this. The forgiveness of sins is what got Jesus killed. That's where he's heading. That's why he's heading there. And for goodness sakes, what is so problematic about forgiving a sin? But as you begin to lay out the stories of Jesus one after another, it is extremely difficult for Jesus to come and forgive your sins. It is not a simple matter. Sinners are, well, uh, how should we say this, endlessly creative uh, about avoiding Jesus Christ and the word that he actually brings and bestows, and they'll find anything that they can possibly think to do in order to avoid this one particular matter, that is to have your sins forgiven. After all, when I forgave your sins moments ago, that meant you were sinners. That's what that meant. And as anybody knows who has been out there in the world a little bit, nobody thinks that they're a sinner in that regard. Oh, I understand there might be a problem or two, but nobody understands themselves at the root to be a sinner and that this is the basic problem that they have. So they said it was blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately... You remember that this is John this is Mark's favorite word immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves said to them why do you question thus in your hearts which is easier to say to the paralytic your sins are forgiven or to say rise take up your pallet and walk but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your pallet, and go home. Well, these are always the two words from Christ. The first is the forgiveness of sins. 
Then the second is, go home. <laughs> well, this is it. Uh, the first we call, uh, do you need fancy language for this? The first we call justification by faith alone. The second is the great teaching of vocation. Now that you have become a good tree, you now go. Because when you go home, that's when you will produce good fruit. That's what happens. So these are the two great teachings that we have. And when Jesus Christ pours this out, of course, those who are hungry for the gospel can't get enough of this. But the ones who are hungry for the gospel are the paralytics. Now, I know something about you people already. And I know something uh, before I even arrive. I didn't even have to spend last night with you to know this. I'm addressing paralytics. I understand this. And when Christ comes for the forgiveness of sins, he knows that he is speaking to bound wills. That means wills who are bound and determined not to hear this particular word from Jesus Christ. Oh, they want to hear something from Jesus Christ, but not this particular word. They want to hear from Jesus Christ something like uh, the secret pathway to knowledge or uh, the wisdom of the world or uh, how it is that the uh, law of Moses uh, can actually be filled, etc. There are all sorts of things that you'd like to hear from Jesus Christ, but not this one particular thing. And beside, if you start going through Scripture and listening to Christ... His sermons are so short that it's absolutely frightening, especially for those of us who are in the industry of standing in front of people and speaking at great length. <laughs> well, you know, I was a little nervous about the fact that I was uh, going to have to address you for perhaps up to an hour. Jesus' sermons, and I haven't done a full survey uh, of this, Jesus' sermons usually last about five seconds. <laughs> he, he's what you call in and out, real fast. Uh, and he lays this word down, and as my teacher Gerhard Ferdy used to say, and I know a number of you have been reading uh, his books on being a theologian of the cross, for example, the gospel is a short word. It's a short word. Now, I don't mind talking at some length to get you up and going uh, uh, with this, uh, but when I talk at some length, of course, we're going to be uh, wheedling in and out about the matter of what our real problem is. But our real problem uh, is that, that our wills have been taken captive, and taken captive in such a way uh, that we no longer have ears to hear. And when a preacher stands up and recognizes that he is addressing people like this, of course, the first tendency of any preacher is to try to uh, free up the will so that you can motivate somebody to improve their situation. And my goodness, uh, motivational speaking has some possibilities out there that some of you have not even yet tapped. You ought to think about this. 
I remember when I was in college and I was thinking about going to the seminary and my engineering roommate had a conversation with me and he said, why in the world would you ever want to go into something like that? And then he thought about it for a minute and he said, you know, there might be money in it if you get your own program on TV. Uh, and of course, in this circumstance, you are, you are constantly going to be moving in the direction of how it is that you can motivate people's wills so that they can, in fact, come to knowledge or fulfillment of a deed or some sort of experience of beauty. You take your pit, pick the good, the true, the beautiful, however it is that you can lay this out. And when you begin to understand that you're speaking to people's uh, free wills, then, of course, Jesus Christ's word of the gospel is not going to be heard. But I also know something about the word that is proclaimed from Jesus Christ, and it is especially meant for people who cannot hear, who have no potential or capability in themselves for this hearing. And in that way, then, Jesus knows how it is that he has to come and bestow this gift. He does it from the outside with a word that has power. This is what we mean by the Holy Spirit who takes these words, plants them through the ear into the heart so that they can come out of the mouth and in this way, you can actually be freed so that when you hear the word of forgiveness, the word that will finally come out of your lips is my Lord and my God. <laughs> Amen. Amen. So there's the entirety of Christian worship. You first lay out the forgiveness of sins, and then you wait for people to say, Amen. Now, the rest of it is just... Uh, enjoying uh, what's just happened. Uh, the rest of it is what we call getting used to justification, uh, having some sort of sense about what this freedom actually means, because uh, we're not used to actually being free in the world. And when you get somebody who's actually been freed, they start acting, well, lawlessly. So, as one of my students said the other day, we were working through our text. She said, you know, I think I'm getting this. The kingdom of heaven is exactly like this world and this creation and this earth, but without the law. And if that's the case, then we truly and really are free, but we get frightened about what a world is like without a guide, without uh, a goal which I am to reach. And, uh, and of course, this is what's happening with the paralytic. The paralytic doesn't have a goal toward which he is being moved. He just has to go home now. And when he goes home, good fruit will be brought from him, and I can tell you exactly what the fruit is going to be. He's going to start telling about what happened to him the day he was let down to Jesus Christ. And he's going to have nothing but Christ in his mouth. That's the way we put it. 
So every time he opens up his mouth, Christ comes out. Until the people in his family are going to finally say, well, can't you ever talk about anything else? Isn't there anything else? Well, he's going to say, well, for Christ's sake, what am I? Oh, you, look, I, I, I was bound and now I'm free. What else am I going to talk about? And in this way, he's going to turn around and actually be authorized to give this same word of forgiveness to another. This is where the book of John ends up in particular. I'm going to uh, slip over to that. Again, I know a number of you are preparing your sermons for John this Sunday. And I want you to know about this greatest gift that Christ is providing the paralytic here and which he sent me to provide for you today. That is what we call the office of the keys. Well, that's our fancy language for it. The office of the keys is the authority to forgive sin. The authority to forgive sin is the authority to have the keys that unlock the prison door that each person is bound in. The prison that they are found in is going to be a variation of a theme uh, and, uh, and you're going to have to find your way in to each and every one of them. But you are going to find your way in by using the keys to unlock the prison door. And that key is the key of the forgiveness of sins. And you have to remember that what's happening uh, with uh, Jesus Christ and his disciples uh, is that the disciples have betrayed Christ and they are now huddled uh, after the death of Jesus Christ in a little room when Jesus Christ raised from the dead comes through the door. You remember this story. And when he comes through the door, he is not greeted with acclamation and joy. <laughs> because after all, Jesus arriving from the dead is not good news in and of itself. Especially when you have just betrayed the man. So at this point, you would say just what Jonah said and just what Job said. Uh, couldn't you give me a little room so that I could spit? Can't you leave me alone for just a minute, O oh Lord? Do you have to even follow me into this place and time? Can't I at least have a moment of sorrow for the loss of my dear friend Jesus Christ? Uh, and can't I at least uh, uh, understand uh, that I have lost the best thing, uh, the best person in my life? And in Jesus Christ strides. And of course, the first thing they're afraid of, which is the bondage each one of us has, is that Jesus Christ has come for retaliation. That's what they're afraid of. Because you've lived in this world long enough and when you have betrayed another person, what starts to be the fear in your life is that that betrayal will come back upon you and you, in fact, uh, will be punished. Now, you can call it by any name you want. You can call it karma if you want. Uh, you can call it uh, the, the great circle of the world and, uh, and what you give is what you get back and so on and so forth. But this is at the basis of the problem with all of our relationships. There is enough betrayal that every one of you have perpetrated, 
and also felt from another person to know that reconciliation is not only hard, it is finally impossible for us to accomplish. And the best thing we can do in most of our circumstances, in most of our situations with mother, father, children, brother, sister, uncle, friends, and so forth, is that when the betrayal becomes too great, to just cut it off, to, to walk away from that relationship because it has become too painful and too difficult and the problem cannot be overcome. And even those of you who finally recognize that the Ten Commandments are right and the Fourth Commandment in particular, that you can't get away from your father and mother no matter what you do, <laughs> when you start to recognize this, then, of course, you start to see what the real problem is here. You become more and more isolated because there is an awful lot of betrayal that is going on out there in the world. You perpetrate some of it, you get some of it, and at the basis, if you could find a way to forgive, that, of course, is the way out, but you can't do it. Because if you turn to one of your friends who has betrayed you and you forgive them outright, without condition, without demanding something back, what do you suppose is going to happen? Well, they're going to do it again. <laughs> because you just made it too easy for them. I mean, if you turn around and forgive your parents or you forgive your, your, your children or you forgive your spouse or you forgive a friend when there has been a betrayal, the fear immediately is that it will just be repeated. It will become a habit. And you'll become a doormat for society, isn't this right? And everybody is going to stomp all over you. And uh, this is what makes forgiveness so difficult. Impossible, finally. Now here are the disciples in the room. And in comes Jesus Christ. And all they have in the conscience is the law which tells them that when they have betrayed, then they must receive the penalty of the law itself. Retribution, we call it. And retribution, divine or human, is what, of course, begins to destroy every one of the fabrics in our social makeup. And we're going to learn something. We'll learn uh, this together about uh, what happens with the need to forgive sin but the inability to do it. This is what Paul uh, refers to with his word sinaitis, the conscience. And it was the Reformers who especially uh, began to take this matter seriously. They said the key problem for people that we have to address is what they called a troubled conscience. A troubled conscience, by the way, for those of you who are going to preach on John chapter 12, is what Jesus says he has in that 12th ch uh, of a chapter. He says, my soul, or if you like uh, Paul's word, my conscience is troubled. Jesus says this. And when he says this, he says, what would you have me do? Would you have me do... Uh, what all of you think is the right thing to do when your conscience is troubled, when your soul is troubled, turn to the Father and ask Him to remove the trouble. 
Because if he removed the trouble from me in this circumstance, then the hour that I have come for, that is to pour myself out for sinners like you, would be missed. And so he says, my hour has come, and would you have me turn to the Heavenly Father and say, take this away from me? Oh, no. Now, a troubled conscience works like this. When the law gets up in the conscience, you start thinking about your conscience the way little cartoons used to depict your, depict your conscience. And you remember how this was done? Where you would be... Uh, uh, thinking about some sort of decision you have to make, and then two little figures would pop up, one on each shoulder. On one side, uh, this would be a little, uh, immature, a, a little miniature version of yourself with wings, and we call that the angelic self. On the other shoulder is a little miniature version of yourself with horns, and we call that the demonic self. And then you stand between these two, deciding which way you're going to go, toward the devil side or toward the heaven side. And when you think about the conscience this way, you are starting to understand what it means to be bound, so that finally everything in life becomes this decision about whether I'm going to go to the left or to the right, up or down, angelic or bestial or, even worse, demonic. And when the law gets in the conscience, it starts to teach the conscience that it must make the right choice at the right time. But Jesus doesn't deal with the conscience this way. Jesus does not address your conscience as if he were a little miniature version of yourself on one shoulder in opposition to the devil. Instead, he understands that the conscience is what we sometimes call the seat of you, the throne of you. And who is sitting in that throne then determines who you are. We call this the sense of belonging. And if you do not know to whom you belong, then, of course, uh, your conscience is troubled. And a troubled conscience is, is a dislocated conscience. It doesn't know where it belongs. And it doesn't feel at home. And because it doesn't feel at home, it's constantly wandering to and fro, wandering about. And by the way, this is the way uh, Mark especially describes what happens to the demons. They're constantly wandering to and fro. They don't know where to go. They're out searching. They're out looking. A conscience is the GPS locator of you, the, the thing that identifies where you belong and are and where your home is. And where your home is, is to whom you belong. And when you don't know to whom you belong, then your conscience is constantly troubled. It's constantly thirsty. It's constantly looking for water, and it can't find living water. Therefore, the conscience must be addressed not from within, but from outside. And it must be addressed in such a way that Christ can actually give you your place. 
tell you to whom you belong. And he has to do this by breaking through what you fear is his anger. So the disciples are in that room when Jesus comes uh, in, afraid of what he might say, waiting for his retaliation, and waiting for him at least to, to say, well, where were you when I needed you? And instead what he says is, peace be with you. Do you remember this? Peace be with you. This is why Paul begins most of his letters and in his salutations with these famous words, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now why would Paul add to a perfectly good Jewish prayer grace and Christ? Since the perfectly good Jewish prayer is shalom, peace, and of course, uh, praying it to God. And here now Paul adds grace and Christ so that you can understand what Christ does when he arrives. When he arrives to sinners, he now gets rid of the law in the conscience. He wipes it out and he takes the seat in the conscience. And when he sits down, he actually brings peace. The very next thing that Jesus does, when he has said, peace be unto you, he now breathes on them. And out of his breath comes the Spirit who creates absolutely new, absolutely new, out of nothing. And when he creates this way, he speaks and what he speaks are finally the beautiful words of the office of the keys. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he bestows this power upon his betraying disciples. And lo and behold, this is the same power that was given to me, which I used to unleash you so that you could walk about freely. And you people also now, upon hearing this, have been given the office of the keys. Now you have to start learning how to go about using this so that you can actually unlock the prison door of people out there who need to hear this. Now we have a fancy name for this as well. We call this the cure of souls. The cure of souls has a German name. It's called Zalesorga, and some of you will have come upon this. And what I'm now teaching you is how it is that you take care of souls. There are plenty of other things out there in the world that will take care of other parts of you. There are plenty of tanning salons. I saw them as I was coming down the street. That'll take care of your skin. Uh, and uh, there are plenty of other things that uh, are going to meet your needs. But there isn't, uh, there, there, there isn't a shop... Uh, or a location on the street yet for the forgiveness of sins until you arrive in, in a place like this. And in a place like this, you have to understand that the occupation or job is the forgiveness of sins. And the forgiveness of sins, however, is never going to be done very effectively as long as it's within this kind of a building. It has to be let loose 
out into the world, and therefore it has to be let loose with you people so that you can actually turn around to another human being and learn how to forgive her sins or his sins. Now, when I used to teach uh, manners uh, about uh, marriage, I would always begin with this, so that the key thing that I want you to learn how to do, so that you know how to use the keys, is to actually, in your marriage, learn how to forgive one another's sins, not just every now and then, or when, you, uh, when you've had a big whopper sin uh, and work up some special form of forgiveness, but to do so regularly. And to do so regularly now means that you uh, find the way to turn to one another and you give each other the forgiveness of sins daily. And the forgiveness of sins daily actually begins to work and function exactly the way Christ wants it to work and function. That is to, to release you. To release you from the fear that you're going to lose the other person, uh, that the other person is going to go away, that the other person is going to uh, betray you, or that you yourself uh, um, will betray. And in these ways you actually begin to sit down and figure out how it is that you will bear the fruit of the forgiveness of sins. The fruit of the forgiveness of sins needs especially to be practiced for those who are nearest to you, not those who are far, far away. It's easy to develop what we call a telescopic philanthropy so that at a distance you can think good thoughts about people maybe even make a contribution uh, uh, with people at a distance. Now, we're talking about those who are very near you, the ones who really can betray you and will betray you in one way or another. And in that way, in that place, we want to teach you to learn how to do this. The first thing you have to know is that you have the authority to do it. When you have been given this promise of the forgiveness, the authority is also given. And the authority now is going to be given in the form of two keys, not one. The two keys are the keys that bind. The first key is the key that binds. And the next key is the key that frees absolutely and completely. And to learn how to work with both of these keys is going to be the work that we're going to have to do now in the next couple of days. Sometimes we call this the two words, the words of the law and the words of the gospel. And the way then that you apply this is to start to identify who needs what when. And in that way then you start learning when especially you need to apply the office of the unconditional forgiveness. And believe me, there isn't a person out there who of himself or herself wants to forgive another person unconditionally. Every time you send out this forgiveness, you want to have a little bit of a tag on it, a little bit of a condition or precaution that it not be misused. And the fear that this would um, let loose people is uh, what you have to learn to live with. Most people come... And, uh, and believe that the work that they have to do is to somehow motivate your free will, but not motivate it so much 
that you would actually be so free in relationship to them that you might, in fact, abuse or misuse them. But when Christ comes, he is not interested in somehow freeing your free will, but not so that it becomes so free that you might become, uh, well, sinful and unclean with it. Instead, he knows that the key problem is that you are so bound that the only thing that can be done is an absolute, unconditional, without any, without any limitations, forgiveness of sin that just ends the law once and for all, right there. Throughout all of Scripture, Mark, as I've described to you, and John as well, the key always comes down to this. Is Jesus Christ a new Moses who's coming to give you an improved version of how it is that you can get along with each other better by listening to the word of the law? Or is Jesus Christ the one who comes and actually brings that law to a complete and total end? So that there is no more requirement, but there is only freedom. And as Paul says, what's freedom for, after all? Well, to be free. It has no other end. It has no other goal. It's not going any other place. To be free now means that for freedom Christ has set you free. That's what that means. Now what's it going to be like when you wake up tomorrow and you have no goal? You have no purpose. You have no drive. Uh, you have nowhere else to go. Well, I hope you get up and ambulate freely uh, and watch what begins to happen. This is when Jesus Christ says, you go home now uh, and you just wait to see what I bring. Now, I've been talking a, a, a long enough time. You know uh, about some of these matters and uh, I, no doubt uh, we, uh, uh, I, 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 uh, you, you'll have some questions that uh, will begin bubbling up. And uh, you have been kind enough to read things from me and uh, from Gerhard Ferdy and others in our uh, little merry band of uh, sinners. Uh, and, uh, and I'd like to start hearing from you, uh, and the more of that, the better, and uh, we'll continue it on uh, next time as well. But, uh, but let's see if we can't uh, start uh, working on, uh, on responses to what I've said now and uh, what you are thinking about and what I've written in other places as well. Thank you, Stephen, for that wonderful talk. And uh, just question, it's one thing to announce the forgiveness of another person, say, who has wronged you, but another, another thing to go through the mechanics of actually doing that. And, and can you enlighten us a little bit about what steps to take yeah. when someone has offended you and when you feel estranged and yep. bound? Um, what, what actually, I mean, do you write a letter? Do you phone them up? Do you go see them? Do you, you know, et cetera. Right. Those, just unpack that a little bit for us, would you? Good. Now, you remember in the Lord's Prayer, we pray, forgive us our trespasses. Uh, as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Now, 
without understanding how it is that we are made just and right with our Lord. This is going to be laid out in front of you as a quid pro quo. That is a condition for being forgiven. And I assure you that as long as this is the way forgiveness of another person is heard and understood, there will be very little of it that actually gets done. It will be far too uh, dangerous to actually uh, start this process and, and, uh, and let this fly. So what we have to do is learn how to distinguish uh, the way a, uh, a good tree is made and what a good tree produces in its fruit. And here we start to learn the difference between uh, uh, having the announcement made of the forgiveness of sins, which I've given to you and I've described, and then the expectation of what will begin to uh, happen in our lives to bear such fruit. Now, I know you're, you're, and you're rightly talking about this second part. That is, uh, what sort of fruit can come from this, and how, uh, how do we actually go about doing it? Now, I'm going to give you a little uh, illustration. Uh, I'm not sure if you, uh, 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 this is not being videotaped, right? So I can now uh, speak about a couple of my students uh, and do so rather freely. <laughs> uh, I have a lovely student right now who, uh, who is what we call my, my catechist, and I actually have uh, my students memorize a catechism that teaches the basic promises of Scripture uh, the law in Scripture and the promises, uh, and uh, actually how to uh, give these. And uh, she uh, has been working on uh, the Eighth Commandment. The Eighth Commandment uh, now has to do with this matter of, about not bearing false witness against your neighbor. This is the one that really becomes problematic when we're talking about grace in personal relationships and it comes down usually to the uh, matters of uh, gossip, um, harming another person's reputation, using words uh, that, um, that tear apart uh, a, a, a friendship rather than build it up. And at our little seminary in, uh, in St. Paul, uh, we had uh, a couple of our really good preachers uh, get into a right royal fight with one another. Uh, and, uh, and they were tearing at each other and actually creating groups around them uh, trying to justify their position one against the other. Now, I had long taught them uh, that life itself was forensic in shape. That's a fancy way of saying that everything you do and everything you think in this life comes under the form of, of, uh, of, of a judgment. And, uh, and the experience of that is to want to justify yourself before other people. So uh, uh, we begin to learn that when you wake up in the morning, you start a process as an old creature and an old sinner to justify yourself in front of other people. And when you get into a situation where you're trying to justify yourself to another person, 
You usually start in the morning with the person that you wake up with. Uh, then you start to branch out uh, to other people that you're sitting at table with, and you're, you're justifying yourself over and over again. You realize that doing this all by yourself is not very fun. So you actually have to start including other people uh, who will actually join in on the justification of you. Aren't I right? Isn't that true? Didn't I say that? Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I didn't deserve this. Isn't this right? And so on. And you actually gather around you a little group of your own personal jury, which you are going to take in to the forensic situation. That just means a courtroom situation. And everybody, day in and day out, builds a little courtroom in which they have their own witnesses, and they bring them to bear. And then on, on a certain point or a certain date, these, uh, these accusers and defendants clash in court. They fight. And they bring their witnesses one, uh, from one side or another. So my students uh, had this little fight going on. And uh, one side came to my office and pleaded for my witness on their behalf. They wanted me to stand up on the judgment day and uh, declare them guiltless. Then within an hour, the opposing side came in to my office, sat down and wanted me as witness there. Well, uh, now you know, uh, you can see what's going to happen here. So I did what any self-respecting professor would do. I agreed with both of them. <laughs> then, then I told them uh, that, uh, that they were both uh, righteous and both self-righteous uh, and both completely and utterly under the curse of the devil. Now, uh, uh, now uh, from this point on, uh, uh, they needed to do something. Uh, and the thing they needed to do was to begin the process of forgiveness. Now, this is a tricky business. What I did uh, with each one in, uh, in my separate conversations with them is tell each one that they were to blame and that they needed to go and make confession to the other. And you start the process by confessing your sin. That's where you start it. You do not start it with the demand of uh, justification from the other. You start with the confession of your sin, and then you pray and hope that the Spirit will bring good fruit. But if the good fruit cannot come, I want you to remember something at this point. Our dear Lord, every now and then, will give you little glimpses in your life of the fruit of the forgiveness of sin. Every now and then, he'll give you a little breakthrough where you never expected a reconciliation. A reconciliation will come. But your faith will not depend on seeing that fruit. It will not depend on it. Instead, it's going to depend on the word of the forgiveness of sins, which I first gave to each one separately. I identified their sin I forgave it. Here's your announcement of sin. Now, I, say, I said, now comes the fruit time. Now you go home and let's see what happens. And, of course, uh, they each contacted each other. They began with a confession of their own sin. 
They ask forgiveness from the other. And then all hell broke loose. Uh, they, they decided uh, they were going to declare nuclear war on each other in the middle of this process. So in comes the old professor again uh, into this matter. Uh, uh, and once they had uh, uh, declared uh, the desire to mutually destroy one another again, uh, I reminded them that their faith cannot depend on this reconciliation in sight. But we were going to work and work and work until something, something uh, was produced. Well, they're in the process of doing that right now, and this is what we've got so far. Detente. We've got, uh, we've got, uh, they both have nuclear missiles, but they have decided not to use them for the present. Uh, and uh, we're, still, uh, we're still working on this matter. But believe me, they need, first of all, to have a local forgiveness person. That was myself. That's the announcer of this. Then we, uh, we allow this to start working in the form of going and making confession of sin. That's where that starts. And making confession of sin then begins, we hope, the process of reciprocation. I, too, have... My problems here, I've said things I shouldn't have said, etc. Then you enter into uh, actually giving the forgiveness one to the other. And, of course, when you get too close to this, you know what happens. And if the person is too important to you, when you forgive the other person, the, the tendency is to fear what, what they will do with that forgiveness and to fear that they're going to be too free and, therefore, they won't pay the penalty uh, you won't get your, uh, your pound of flesh or something. But here again, you have to come back to the preacher and hear that, uh, that death is already behind you and you don't have to secure these matters anymore. Um, it's all right now. It's okay not only to lay your burden down, but to recognize that Jesus Christ himself has already entered into this and has taken over this sin. And the more you fight over it, I tell my students, the more you try to rob Christ of what belongs to him, which is this sin itself. Now, when you go knocking at Christ's door and you demand to take things back from him, uh, that's not a pretty sight. So you, you, you have to begin speaking in this way uh, so that you understand that these sins belong to Christ they don't belong to you, and for you to try to claim them, uh, pull them back, uh, this is, uh, this is going, uh, go, going uh, to rob Jesus Christ himself. Uh, and that kind of stealing we don't like to, to see or to have. But we'll talk a little bit more about those uh, matters uh, in the future as well. But, they, but um, to be forgiven, to receive the announcement of the forgiveness, means you first turn and make confession to another. And uh, what I'd like to do next time is start to open up uh, the, the matter of, um, of uh, how it is that, uh, that, that the Word of God actually works repentance in another person. And, uh, and, uh, but you're, you're seeing the beginning of it, and I've at least given, given you one example of how we uh, proceed uh, with this.
Hi, Dr. Paulson. Good to I've see you. following you around <laughs> Charleston, now here. I'm it's glad. to find you, know, you the, the, the more the better. The For a long time, I thought there were only Lutherans in the Midwest. Um, <laughs> I have a question uh, because I sympathize greatly with a sort of Lutheran take on this, the Christian situation. And yeah. so because of that, I often find that I'm called this dirty word, which is antinomian. And a lot of us get it, and a lot of us accuse each other of it. And uh, I'm just so tired of hearing it, and I don't know how to respond. And I'm wondering if you have, I'd love to hear a little bit of how it is that you deal with the, the great gospel protest uh, yep. about antinomianism. Um, once, you've, uh, once you've given such an unconditional freedom, the fear is then that, uh, that a person will in fact behave lawlessly, and to be lawless then would be uh, to be an antinomian, that is, a person who is opposed to the law itself. Uh, first thing that we can observe, and I can say it to this group, is that an antinomian is correct, but just premature. Uh, that is, uh, the law does come to an end, uh, but not in this old world. Uh, and uh, therefore, uh, is, uh, is, is premature on this matter. You can't rush this. Uh, and uh, and uh, part of my talk, uh, though I, I, uh, I changed this a little bit, was meant to... Uh, to come back to the Ten Commandments and st uh, start showing how we use that. So I'm going to give you a quick example of this. The law does not belong in your conscience. That's the first thing. The law does not belong in your conscience. Uh, therefore, the, the law cannot tell you to whom you belong. The law, after all, which is God's holy word, um, lacks something. The early Christians, Irenaeus, put his finger on this, and that was that the law is not spirit. Or, if you like uh, other terminology, the law is not a person. And therefore, you cannot belong to it, uh, and it cannot, in fact, speak any words uh, of promise on your behalf. That's why the, the law doesn't belong in your conscience. It was never meant to be there. Uh, and when it crawls up in the conscience, you know exactly what it sounds like because most of you have developed uh, a highly developed uh, understanding of the law. Uh, if we can use Freud for just a minute, you have a very developed superego. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. And a superego is what we sometimes uh, call your feedback loop. That is, you talk to yourself. That's what I mean by that. Uh, and those of you who talk to yourself know what I mean by this. You have, my goodness, you have conversations with yourself. Uh, and, uh, you know, you're your own best friend. Uh, and, here's the trick, your own worst enemy. This is the trick. So when you talk to yourself... Uh, because you know yourself so well, you actually, oh, I'm going to pick this up from the sermon uh, uh, last night. Uh, you, uh, you know how to torture yourself. Uh, you know all the buttons to push with yourself. 
and you start attacking yourself. So you have a conversation over lunch or something, and you leave it, and you say, oh, I shouldn't have said that, or, oh, I should have said this another way. I, as a teacher, have this all the time. I have a, a terrible habit of talking to myself. So after a sermon or one of my uh, talks, in comes the devil and whispers in my ear, oh, you forgot to mention this, didn't you? <laughs> oh, what about that? Oh, this one could have been said better. Well, what about this illustration, etc.? So you have this conversation with yourself that begins accusing the self. This is how this works. And when you start accusing yourself in this way, then you actually have to start defending yourself at the same time. It's an awful circumstance to be in. But the law doesn't belong in that place. The law is actually your own inner voice speaking to you about what should have happened and what should have been done. Now that has to come to an end. The way this comes to an end is for the law to be shoved out of the conscience and for Christ to sit in the throne of you. Now some of you are going to be ready for this too uh, because some of you have been reading not only Gerhard Ferdi but uh, Luther's Bondage of the Will. This comes from the Psalms, by the way. You are like an ass who is ridden by something. <laughs> uh, that's what you're like. Now, you might like to think of yourself as a uh, thoroughbred. You might like to think of yourself as at least a pony. Uh, but you are an ass. Uh, and the ass has a saddle in it. And somebody is sitting or something is sitting in the saddle. But the saddle is made for one and one only, Jesus Christ. And anyone else occupying that seat is in the wrong place. And Christ is not going to have it. And what he does is knock it out. And if the law itself, which is after, the holy, after all the holy word of God, sits in that saddle, it does not belong there. Now, to the question of antinomianism. When you knock the law out of the conscience and you stop talking to yourself about what you should have done or didn't do, etc., instead you hear the voice of Christ only and alone. And what does, what does the voice of Christ sound like? It does not sound like your voice. He sounds like this. I am pleased with you. I am pleased with you. <laughs> Oh, but Lord, you don't—you don't know what I've done. No, I, sh shut up. I am pleased with you. <laughs> I am pleased with you, not on account of your very good ass riding. I—I uh, I, am—I am pleased with you on another count. I am pleased with you because of my own work on your behalf, my expiation for you. That's why I'm pleased with you. Now, where does the law go? when it is kicked out of the saddle. The law does not disappear. That's an antinomian. The law does not disappear, but it goes now into its proper place. Paul puts it this way in the seventh chapter of Romans. He says, the law does not belong in your conscience, but it belongs in your members. Your members are any external uh, protruding appendage you've got. And the law belongs, therefore, in your fingers and hands and arms, 
and it belongs in your legs, and some of you, not all of you, have another protruding appendage, and uh, we won't go too far into that, but anything like that, that's where the law belongs. That's where it belongs. It does not belong up in the conscience. And when it belongs there, it is now put in what we call its penultimate place, not the ultimate place but the penultimate place, the secondary place. It doesn't disappear. And if it goes in the secondary place, now we can start hearing the law without its um, uh, immediate demand. Now, the law, of course, is going to come in a particular way. Uh, and now we can begin to see and hear what it is actually for. It was never given in order to save you. It was never given to save you. The Ten Commandments and Moses were never provided in order to give you a pathway to righteousness. That's not what this was. But what the law is given for in all of its various forms is to give you your neighbor, to let you hear your neighbor's voice, to... Uh, to uh, uh, listen to it long enough so you, that you know who this neighbor is. But when we start speaking about it this way, we now uh, start speaking about the law uh, in what we call its several uses. And with that, then we'd have to start taking up another kind of discussion. Uh, and uh, we'd also have to identify uh, in what place and in what way this law, in fact, uh, comes to an end. Uh, but I'll say this much. The Ten Commandments, you remember, is divided into two parts. The parts are two tablets, and hence they're called two tables. The first table of the Ten Commandments involves your relationship with God. The second tablet involves your relationship with human beings. In the first tablet, God wants three things. God wants your heart, the first commandment. He wants your lips, uh, the second commandment. And he wants your ear, the third commandment. Uh, and, uh, and he's telling you that he's going to come and get those come hell or high water. Uh, but in this first commandment, we can actually understand and hear uh, that our Lord is preserving this old life so that you can be held in readiness for the hearing of the gospel. And hence the law has a penultimate place, and its, uh, its purpose is to preserve life, to foster life, what we call the first use of the law. And then, finally again, because the law never stays uh, settled, it always tries to get up in the conscience, it comes in the form of a second use that drives true Christ only and alone. So uh, an antinomian is, uh, is trying to get uh, 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 separated from the law too fast. It goes, uh, it's in its penultimate place as long as this old uh, uh, world continues and as long as you continue in it. We'll take up the second table tomorrow, I think. Yeah. Yes. Dr. Paulson, I just want to say, wow, this is, this is great. Um, I really appreciated what you up close. Okay. Wow. I really appreciated what you said about um, giving and seeking forgiveness in 
uh, relationships with those close to you, but it immediately brought to mind Romans 12:18, when uh, Paul says, uh, if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. What about when it's not possible? Yeah. When it's not possible, you do exactly. This is uh, Paul's language is very helpful here. Now, when he's talking not about what makes you right and just, and he's talking about the fruit of faith, not what makes you, uh, uh, what gives you faith, what makes you faithful, then he's talking about possibility. Now, uh, uh, in justification, he removes all language of uh, of of uh, of progress and and process and so on. But when he turns to the fruit, now we're talking about possibility. And he knows very well that you come up against situations where it is not possible. And you remember one of the most important for Paul is his relationship with Barnabas. When they had a falling out, it was a terrific falling out. And it was a falling out, as usual for Paul, uh, on the issue of how you preach the gospel and whether you do so unconditionally or not, whether you add something to Christ or do not add something to Christ. And you remember that Paul is this great apostle who, when he, when he hears a preacher add something to Jesus Christ, goes right at him and won't let him go. So you remember he goes back to Peter uh, when Peter decided he was going to make a little addition to Jesus Christ, oh yeah, Jesus Christ, that's just fine, but uh, let's also uh, reserve table fellowship, etc., only for uh, certain uh, 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 certain people. Paul goes back and he preaches to him, and it alienates people. Uh, it also reconciles finally, but Paul knows that there are. Um, limits to this particular matter. Even in my ex uh, recent example of, uh, of, uh, of my students who uh, have been at, uh, at war with one another, uh, we're, we're dealing with, with levels of possibility. And what this allows me to do, because I recognize that this is not the means by which they will be made righteous, it allows me to have some patience with them some time with them to recognize that these things do in fact uh, take time and there will be limits and uh, it is also uh, understandable in uh, many circumstances in life you will actually reach a point where you cannot have an ongoing relationship with another person uh, and there is not going to be reconciliation in this life. Uh, but we trust and hold that the reconciliation in the new life has already been made on account of Christ. So it's going to give us some patience. Now I'm going to give you a, another example of where you come across a limit on this matter. Um, uh, th this past summer, one of my students committed suicide. This has absolutely been devastating. And the most devastating thing is that she removed the possibility from a number, a number of us to reconcile in this life with her. She cut this off, you understand. Uh, and she does not allow this particular matter of reconciliation. That's an absolute limit. 
I had to go and speak to her parents who were absolutely distraught and wondered why those of us who had been teaching were not able to save her. That's the way they put it. So there I was sitting at table with her father. Her father is a farmer. Uh, and he says, I have all my life sat in my tractor plowing my field and found it the greatest joy in my life where I would sit for hours on end going backward and forward plowing my field over and over again and I took the greatest joy but now I sit in my tractor and I can only think my daughter has been taken by the devil. Well, uh, um, I cannot reconcile, nor can others reconcile. We have reached an absolute limit on the matter of this fruit of faith. But there is another thing that needs to be said here. Since this uh, girl received the forgiveness of sins in no uncertain terms, and I myself gave it to her as I sat across from her, so I said to the Father, I want you now, when the, when the word comes to you on your tractor that the devil has taken your daughter, I want you to remember Christ on the cross next to the criminal and what he said to, to him. Today you will be with me in paradise. This particular matter now is, uh, is what we mean by the announcement of the forgiveness. Even when there is a limit reached regarding what we can humanly do with our reconciliation. And there our faith rests. So that we listen to Christ and his word there. And then we have to endure uh, not being able to reconcile every circumstance. But we trust now that in the new creation and new life, which we do not yet see, this reconciliation has already taken place. Now I give thanks to God because he gives us little glimpses every now and then. Remember, your faith is not going to depend on what you see, but rather what you hear. It's going to depend on the promise of Christ and his faithfulness to that promise, not what you see. But our Lord is merciful. And our Lord will give you every now and then a peek, a glimpse. And it's all right for you to open your sack wide, as we say, and ask God for everything you can possibly think of. And in that circumstance, then, you can uh, ask for little peaks, little uh, experiences, uh, little uh, uh, indications that something is, in fact, at work. Uh, and when you found a limit or uh, 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 the potential seems uh, gone, at the very least we ask for, uh, for patience and, uh, and we await that coming of Christ when we will finally see what we have only heard uh, at this point. All right? Good. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Paulson. As you know, there will be an additional. Yes, thank, thank you. Thank you so much. For those of you that did not get to ask him your question uh, or if you...